Does it work? It works. Good morning, everybody. Let me uh, open us up in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Sabbath, for our rest, for our reminder of an eternal rest, a reminder today of uh, the work that you have accomplished on the cross through your Son, Jesus Christ, for to secure that eternal rest for us. Um, thank you for this day of uh, fellowship with fellow believers, Lord, and a day that we can pursue knowledge and wisdom about you. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, be here this morning, that you would speak through me, um, that you would allow me to get out of the way, Lord, and that uh, this lesson would be taught faithfully. I pray for Jared this morning as he delivers your word as well, and I just pray for receptive hearts, and I pray that these words would be taken out into the week, Lord, and that they would be meditated on, Lord, and that we would become better stewards of your gospel. Make us effective workers in the world, and give us opportunities to share the gospel, and to be the instruments that you use for the salvation of those whom you have chosen to give to your Son. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in the third week of our study, uh, Two Ways to Live. And this is, as has already been explained, a, uh, a tool that we're trying to um, learn and, and get a grasp of so that we can go out and use for evangelism. So we can go out and use to deliver the gospel to a lost world, to be the disciples that we've been called to be, uh, to fulfill the great commandment, uh, the great commission, excuse me. Um, so uh, the, just a quick review of where we've been uh, before we start this section. Uh, cells 1 and 2 we discussed in the prior two weeks uh, and uh, in an effort to repeat these and, and firmly plant them in our minds, uh, we'll do a quick review here. Uh, the first theme of the gospel that we discussed in cell one uh, was we were introduced to God, the loving ruler and creator. And if you'll remember, we, the little simple drawing was here is the earth, here is man, and here is God as the ruler, as the creator of all. Um, in his vast wisdom and might, God created all that exist. All things were made by him and for him, including humans made in his image. And this means that we, uh, that he as creator has creator rights on our lives. He lovingly made us to display his image as we rule the world under his guidance and protection. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Uh, in week two, we discussed um, the fall of man, the, the point at which man rejected God's sovereignty over us and the world. We rejected him as ruler. And uh, we decided to run our own lives without him. Uh, we acknowledge that as we look at the world around us, this wonderful utopian-sounding image 
um, of paradise that God created is far from reality. Selfishness, hatred, wars, death, poverty, disease, starvation, and countless other evils and imperfections mar mankind and the world. Um, So the question was, what went wrong? Um, Everything went wrong when humans, beginning with Adam and continuing in every everyone in history up through you and me, rejected God's plan. Uh, We resented God's claim of authority over us, and we chose to ignore and disobey his commands. And you'll remember that that drawing, in that drawing, we moved to, excuse me, we stepped out of, of God's, uh, authority and we decided to be our own rulers yep. Thank you. so we rejected God's authority and we took it on ourselves our own authority um All of us thereby are rebels against God, and our rebellion, our sin, accounts for the mess we've made of our lives, our society, and the world. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 uh, says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together, together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And that's a description of, of all of humanity, including you and I, including our children from birth. Uh, that is the state that we're in. No one seeks after God, um, short of his drawing and leading us to him, to truth. Um, so man is fallen. We are completely out from underneath his, uh, his sovereignty. We've taken it on ourselves, and we are rebels. Um, so that brings us to this lesson. So today we'll talk about um, judgment, God's judgment. This is God's response to our rebellion. Um, this is, has been an, uh, an, an, a reminder for me, and this has been a great lesson for me. It has humbled me and um, has reminded me of my position before the Lord and so I hope that it affects you as well, as much as it has affected me. So the, the picture that we'll look at today, where we are today, God's response to, um, to our rebellion. So as much as we try, God's sovereignty cannot be muted. God is sovereign. So because of our rebellion, our, his response is that's going to be our picture today but his the consequences of our rebellion now before we discuss in detail about the punishment we brought upon ourselves excuse me let me back up uh, so we see that in our sin the sin has ruined the world that God gave us to rule what's even more our rebellion against God makes us deserving of his righteous judgment this judgment uh, this, this judgment by God is another important aspect of the gospel. It also happens to be the next uh, cell in our ways to, two ways to live track. So uh, 
the biblical support that is given for God's judgment is, we've got a couple of verses here, and there's far more than this, but we'll look at two. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Man is destined to die once, and after that, face the judgment. Um, this verse makes it very clear that no one escapes judgment. Uh, everyone, every created human being, from the beginning of time to the end of time, is appointed to die a physical death and to stand before the Creator who has authority over all that He has created and answer for our rebellion to that Creator. Every single one of us are appointed for that. Additional biblical support can be found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 through 9. God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. So we see that there's not only because of our rebellion and because of the rebellion of Adam, um, we have the consequence of physical death. We were created eternal beings. We were created in a paradise where God supplied all of our needs. We rebelled. Death entered the world. Now it is appointed to every man to die and then face judgment. So we, every one of us, will experience a physical death and, and will stand before our judge, the creator. There is a second consequence, and this one is eternal. Um, so not only did physical death enter the picture, now an eternal judgment, which has eternal consequences, uh, stands before us as well. So the, the consequences are huge. Um, so now, uh, now before we discuss in detail the punishment and, and, and uh, kind of unpack those punishments uh, that we've brought upon ourselves because of our rebellion to God, we'll sh- we should note, that one, note one thing. Scripture is clear in the passages that we read and many others that our opportunity to turn from our rebellion to God is gone when we die. Um, There is no second chance. Just like it was said in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed to to each man to die once. There's no going back. There's no mulligans in this game. Um, This is what puts the sense of urgency on the gospel, on our evangelistic duties as Christians. This is what... Um, This is why Scripture pleads with us that today is the day of salvation. Um, Over and over and over we see the coming uh, culmination of all of this, the coming judgment, the final judgment at the the arrival of the Messiah um, in His second coming. And and we, we hear it spoken about throughout Scripture as something that that no man will expect, no man can predict. We don't know when it's coming. It'll come as a thief in the night. Um, We will inevitably be going about our business, whether it comes comes about in our lives or the next generation or a thousand years from now. It's going to happen. People are going to be doing business as usual, and, and the Lord is going to come back, and it's all going to be over. There will be no more chances. 
So to look at the first consequence, death. Um, Last week we read about the fall of man when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God promised beforehand that that the result would be their death, and he confirmed it afterwards. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, we read, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The curse of death was not limited to Adam and Eve, but applies to us today because we are the offspring and carry their sinful nature with us. Um, We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that sin entered the world through one man and death through it. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Um, We... uh, in, in, in Romans chapter 3, again, we read that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, reminder that no one is, no one is uh, innocent. Uh, and we read in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin are death. Um, so physical death, death is a consequence of our sin. God created life, and in response to our sin, he takes it away. So the judgment... Physical death is not the full and final final consequence, as I discussed earlier, of our rebellion. As we read read earlier in chapter 9 of Hebrews, after the death comes judgment. This judgment is something we would be right to dread. Because we're guilty in our sin, and there is no question but that God will judge us that way. This raises a question, what will that judgment look like? In Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50, um, it reads, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up upon the shore. Then Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it, how it will be at the end of age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it doesn't get much more vivid than that. Um, It's more of Jesus' words in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him... He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So we'll stand in judgment. Every man will stand in judgment before his creator. Um, some will stand in a, in, uh, and will be judged righteous because they are in Christ. The rest will be condemned, guilty as charged, and will be sentenced to eternity apart from God in hell. Um, by the way, if you've ever heard someone say that the God of old, the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, I don't know how they can say that and read these scriptures. Jesus talked a lot about judgment. 
And notice that the punishment he warns us about is eternal. The reality stretches our minds and the concept can be difficult for Christians to accept along with their unbelieving friends. That brings us to uh, B on your outlines, the offense of God's wrath. So how does, uh, the point of this is to be evan- is evangelism, taking this into a lost world. Um, how does the world react to this reality that we've just talked about, this looming judgment? Um, well, several ways. Um, Second Peter chapter three verses three through verses three through seven uh, tells us that knowing this first, know this first, um, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, "Where is this promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In First Corinthians chapter one verse eighteen, we read, uh, "For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So what is the world's reaction to the gospel? To this looming judgment? um, To our guilt as rebels against the creator? Um, They see it as foolishness. Um, they either see it as just complete foolishness or they just completely dismiss it. All right? <clears throat> but it's not just offensive to, to unbelievers. It's offensive to us as well. We don't like this idea of God's judgment. Um, and so we don't talk about it a whole lot. Many argue that God's love should be pro- preclude him from judging those he loves. Uh, George Barna's research group... Did a, did a poll and found that 76% of Americans believe in heaven, but only 71% of Americans, surprisingly, believe in hell. Um, however, only 30% of those who believed in hell, ex- that hell exists, believe hell to be a real place of torment and suffering for people's souls after death. Uh, but the most telling statistic is that only one half of 1% of all Americans expect to go to hell upon death. There's really not a real firm grasp of this concept of judgment, of guilt, of our our standing before a holy God and a looming judgment. Um, Perhaps it's because they just, again, are just dismissive and don't choose not to think about it because it is offensive. Um, or perhaps they just see it as foolishness, as um, just another story. It's true that from a purely human perspective, God's eternal judgment of sinners can seem to be at best harsh and even absurd. But it's important that all our ideas about God be shaped by God's word, not our own intuition. Um, So, to understand this and the need for judgment, um, why God must judge, why he must punish the guilty, 
we need to look at uh, the character of God and understand the character of God, which leads to the necessity of judgment. So, numbers one and two on your outline, God's sovereignty and God's holiness. I'm going I'm to table that for just a moment. I want to skip down to numbers three and four first and come back to one and two. So, look, let's look at God's justice first. Closely tied to our understanding of God's holiness is our appreciation for God's justice. God is good and and a perfect judge. Just as it would be wrong for a human judge to let the guilty go free, God wouldn't be just to let our rebellion go unpunished. Psalms chapter 9, verse 7 through 8 says, The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world for righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. It's easy for us to recognize that justice is good when it's applied to the worst of criminals. Few people would argue that Hitler should be pardoned for his cruel acts to humans. But friends, we need to remember that God has a far higher standard than we have. He's perfect. Our sin against him as our creator is far more serious than Hitler's sin against mankind. Our problem is not that God is the judge. We just don't like him to be our judge. Um, So we don't have a problem understanding the concept of guilt and the need to be punished or the need to be judged and then punished, um, we just have a hard time with, with taking that on and viewing ourselves in that perspective. Uh, one author gives us a helpful reminder that God's judgment is good and not cruel. He says, In God's condemnation of the wicked to hell, we can trust God because in His judgment and wrath there is no cruelty in His actions. Cruelty involves inflicting a punishment that is more severe or harsh than the crime. God is perfectly just. He is not cruel. No innocent person will ever suffer at his hand. If we have a hard time understanding his justice, the problem is is not his, but ours. It is our inability to understand the depth of our sin before a perfectly holy and righteous God. Um, R.C. Sproul gives a good illustration in his book, The Holiness of God, and he writes, Our tendency... To take grace for granted was driven home to me while teaching college students. I had the assignment of teaching a freshman Old Testament course to 250 students at a Christian college. On the first day of class, I went over the course assignments very carefully. This course required three short papers. I explained to the students that the first paper was due on my desk by noon the last day of September. No extensions would be given. If the paper was not turned in on time, the student would receive an F for the assignment. On the last day of September, 25 students stood quaking in terror, full of remorse. I bowed to their pleas for mercy. All right, I said, I'll give you a break this time. But remember, the next assignment is due on the last day of October. Then came the last day of October. 50 students came empty-handed. Once more, I relented. I said, okay, but this is the last time. If you are late for the next paper, it will be an F. Can you guess what happened on the last day of November? Right. A hundred students strolled into the lecture hall utterly unconcerned. I picked up my lethal black grade book and began taking down names. I marked F in the book. The students reacted with unmitigated fury. They howled in protest, screaming, That's not fair. I looked at one of the howling students, called him by name. 
You think it's not fair? No, he growled in response. I see. It's justice you want? I seem to recall that you were late with your paper the, first time, the last time. If you insist on justice, you will certainly get it. I will not only give you an F for this assignment, but I'll change your last grade to an F that you so richly deserve. The student was stunned. He had no more arguments to make. Like these students, we sometimes think that we deserve more grace. But of course, grace is a defi- by definition is something we don't deserve. God gives justice to some and mercy to others, but injustice to none. God's love, number four. The last attribute of God's, uh, the last attribute, uh, or in this case the second, we'll look at is God's love, but this doesn't, doesn't seem right. God is, uh, judgment doesn't seem right. God is love, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the pushback that we get from the world. A loving God would not judge and condemn those that he loves to an eternal um, punishment. How can he be wrathful? Um, aren't those things mutually exclusive? Okay, so we're getting uh, a little deeper in theology here, but uh, it's important to take a moment to consider we need to have an understanding of God's, uh, of how God, God's love fits with his judgment. And number two, in your evangelism, you will likely come across this question. So think of three ways in which God's punishment of sin is a loving act. So three ways. We'll run through them quickly here. Uh, when we think about God's love, we immediately think about how it's given to us. We look at it through the lens of his love directed at us. Is that really the most important aspect or the most important uh, attribute or, or um, is that, that the best way to look at his love? Um, what about his love for his own holiness and his purity and his justice? Shouldn't we look at God's love and whether or not he is loving those attributes? What better thing could he love after all? God's punishment is loving of himself, which is the greatest thing he could love. Number two, so the first one is God loves his holiness and his purity. Number two, the threat of it, the threat of that judgment, just merely knowing about that looming judgment and expressing the inevitability of that coming judgment is loving towards sinners. Warning someone is expressing love to them. If there is a looming danger in front of someone and you don't warn them of that danger, do you love them? So the mere fact that there is a looming judgment and that God has provided a way for us to avoid that judgment is in fact... um, showing his love, his immense love. God doesn't simply punish sin. For thousands of years, he has warned us of this impending punishment so that we would turn from our sin and to Christ. Number three, so number two was the threat of loving, the threat of judgment is loving towards sinners. Number three, punishment of sin is loving towards 
those who have been sinned against. It's justice, right? It's what the saints call for, cry for, and plead for to God in Revelations. When will we be vindicated? When will your justice be carried out? They sought God's love. The exercise of God's love is the judgment against those who have rebelled against him. Unless God detests evil and its effects, he cannot be loving. It's fundamentally loving for God to oppose sin, and it would be unloving for him not to. God's wrath stems from a deep and powerful love. God is against sin because he he is for us, and ultimately for his own glory, and more importantly, for his own glory. If we have a problem understanding how love and judgment fit together, then we must look to the cross where God's wrath and God's love were realized in the death of Christ, his son. And that'll be the topic for next week, Lord willing. So let me back, let's back up and, and look at the offense, uh, or excuse me, the God's sovereignty and God's holiness. I really believe that that this is probably the most important part of this lesson, if not this entire series. Um, Because if we don't get this, then we're not saved. If this was not the initiator of our salvation, then we need to question whether we have salvation. And as evangelists, as saved folks going into a lost world, if we're presenting the gospel, which is very popular today in this day is to present the gospel of Christ without the message of sovereignty and holiness of God. Because this is not palatable to us. So the first character of God, God's sovereignty. Because of the scoffers and the misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and his role as the initiator of salvation, we shy away from this subject. We shy away from the subject of the sovereignty of God. We go out into the world professing to be evangelists and, and evangelizing in a, in a way that, like we're depending on our own salesmanship, like it depended on how we presented it. If, if we can only be convincing enough, if we can only make it palatable to them and make it fit into their, and, and shine it up and make it look appealing to a lost world, we can reach the lost. I would even say that a lot of church, even evangelist, uh, evangelistic churches, do this in their own services. They're... they're the fellowship and community of church, the corporate worship of church, has turned into an evangelistic effort where churches have become, uh, have, have tried or attempted to be better at being the world than the world is and look appealing to a lost world instead of teaching God's word and allowing it to be offensive and allowing it to attack our hearts. It's not palatable. The truth is not palatable. Without the fear of God, without the fear of God, 
no man will ever be saved. Uh, we, we understand from Proverbs that, that, that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Um, that we have to know who God is and why we need to be saved before we'll want to be saved. So we've got to get over this fear of offending people and we've got to present God's sovereignty to the world. Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 17 through 18. All Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to the thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah had a pretty good understanding of God's sovereignty. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to to the counsel of his own will. Let that just just sink in. Just think about that this week. God works all things to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't consult. He doesn't look for the opinion of other people, of his creation. Who is he going to consult after all? He's God. There is no other like him. Uh, It leads us to God's holiness. Now, I would say that God is sovereign because he is holy. That his sovereignty is a direct result of his holiness. Why do I say that? Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 40. Verses 18. We'll start in 18. I'm just going to skip through 18. Verse 21 through 23. And then 25 through 26. To whom then will, God, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him to? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. This is God. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 5 through 11. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on scales. They hire a goldsmith and they make it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship They bear it on their shoulders and they carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. 
Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save them out of its trouble, out of their trouble. Remember this and show yourselves, men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. There is, none, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. God is holy. There is no one he can counsel. There is no other God. Because of that, he is sovereign. He knows better. Our ways, his ways are far higher than ours. Because he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. He must punish it, no exceptions. When we fail to see how God is holy, we, under, we underestimate the seriousness of our sin. A low view of God results in a low view of sin, or no view of sin at all. A low view of sin results in a low view of the need to punish that sin. Instead, we grasp the weight of God's holiness, and, it's, and that itself is a good thing. We can begin to understand why God punishes sin. If he didn't punish sin, he would cease to be holy. I would, before Jared starts yelling at me, I'm going to wrap up here. You said uh, 1020, right? Uh, we can, okay. All right. Uh, I, how do we respond to God's holiness and to God's sovereignty and to the weight of this? Um, I would submit to you that looking at Job would be a good, uh, a good thing to do. Um, and I'll read just real quick. Um, I thought I marked it, but I didn't. Here's Job. I mean, we all know the story of Job, right? Lost his children lost his fortune, homes, everything he had, was covered head to toe in boils, was just inflicted with every pain a man could, could be inflicted with, right? I mean, he, he, he experienced it all. If anybody was to, had the right to say, woe is me, it would be Job, right? Even his wife said that. I mean, just, just die, <laughs> Job took and listened to the counsel of three friends. And, and it's funny, before he even could respond to the counsel, God responded to Job because he knew what he was thinking. And I don't have time to read all of God's response to Job, but please do. Um, God's response in chapters, uh, I believe it starts in chapter 38. Um, but God's response basically summarized is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? 
to even think about questioning my decisions to take, to give and take as I see fit. I am God. Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I established the boundaries of the oceans and told them they could go no further than this? Where were you when I created the beast of the, of the earth? I mean, so puts Job firmly in his place. Um, and I, and really, again, I, you should read this. And just God goes through great lengths to expound on his own greatness, his, his creation which just serves to, for the reader, for us, the hearer, to, to understand this immense gap that exists between us and a holy God. Here's Job's response to, and I would, I would submit that this should be our response. And if the gospel is presented effectively, if God's sovereignty, His holiness, is presented effectively to someone who the Spirit, who God's Spirit is allowing him to see the truth. This will be their response as well. I know this is Job's response in chapter 42 of Job. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard you. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. That's it. Let me say this again. He says, I have heard of you. I have heard of you. He knew of God. He knew the truths of God. But now I see with my eyes. Now I see you. Um, And it's a result of seeing him, seeing his holiness and dwelling on his holiness and understanding the gap that exists between him and the holy God that brought him to the point of true repentance. Yeah. I would say as we take this into the world, as we use this tool, which is a great tool of kind of organizing this message of the gospel, and remind yourself as you take this into the lost world that this will not be accepted. It will not be tolerated. It's not going to be um, accepted gladly. But you must be faithful to the gospel, which includes, and most important part of it, God's sovereignty and his holiness. Because without a fear, a genuine fear, of the looming judgment of a holy God, there is no need for salvation. Right? Um, I'm done. Is there any other any questions on, on what we've gone on?